good to be back with you all. Wow, that's really loud. Um, We're going to be talking today about the hope of finding joy despite injustice that we face. And, you know, here's the reality. We live in a world that is very broken. There, it is filled with pain and suffering. Uh, you probably are aware of this. There's been a whole host of books written in recent years by, you know, well-known atheists. And this whole issue, what theologians call the problem of evil, is, is their biggest argument of why God doesn't exist. Right? How can you have a good, all-powerful God in a world that looks like this? If you're here today and you're not a believer, I suspect you've wrestled with that question. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you are seeking answers and and, uh, wrestling with issues of faith because this is a significant issue. It's one from my own personal life, I'll share more, that that I wrestle with. Um, I can't solve it in the next half hour. Theologians have been trying to do that for a couple thousand years. But this passage does show us ways that God is present with us. And so I want us to consider three things. I want us to think about um, God's purposes in injustice, ways that it fulfills purposes that he has, ways that he uses injustice to transform his people, and ways that through injustice his power is unleashed in our lives. You know, one of the significant reasons why we need to look at this is because people tend to have two responses to suffering and and challenges in their life injustice that they face on one hand maybe they go the route of the atheist right they say well god is absent god is non-existent maybe at best he's impotent but we're dealing with at best a powerless god the other way that people go is is the route of job's friends where they say what did i do wrong why is god punishing me why are you doing this to me you know why do bad things happen to good people and and so in both of these both of these responses were were really impugning the character of god in some way we're doubting his goodness we're doubting his power we're doubting his care so these are significant significant issues that we need to wrestle with that this passage addresses So, the first thing I want to look at in this passage is the fact that injustice fulfills God's purposes. So, we're we're seeing Paul here, and Paul is clearly experiencing injustice, right? He's been imprisoned for his faith. He's he's being locked up because of what he believes. In fact, his places in Acts, it's interesting, you know, Acts anticipates his being sent off to Rome. The book of Acts ends with him in prison in Rome, right, which is what we're then now reading about in this book, Um, and both Jewish and Roman authorities are talking to each other in the book of Acts saying, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. This guy hasn't done anything worthy of death or imprisonment. You know, they're all kind of confounded. Why should we do this? Because they were worried about the Jewish religious leaders, and that's kind of how it all started and how he ended up in prison. But then everybody's just kind of confounded, well, what do we do with this guy now? He ends up in Rome. He ends up in prison. So he's facing pretty significant injustice. Um... You know, probably his prison situation wasn't like this medieval, like, dank, you know, rats running around and, like, feces everywhere. But it was pretty bad, right? I mean, he's in prison. He's lost his freedom. Um, He's chained to a Roman guard 24-7 to a member of the Imperial Guard. I like how Jeff put this in his sermon last week. That means they went to the bathroom with him. Just so it's clear, you know, his life was a little bizarre, okay? He's dealing with injustice. He's having a hard time. Um... 
But what do we see recounted in this passage? What does he say? He starts off in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, don't be upset. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's, he's overwhelmed because he sees that God's hand is at work in this, that, that there is providence in play. And so what does he say? There's, there's three things specifically I want to look at um, regarding God's purposes here. Number one is the providential circumstances. He's spending his days chained to a member of the imperial guard. The guard, of course, is rotating, so he's getting exposed to all kinds of of different uh, members of the imperial guard. And so he writes, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all of the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So here's this astounding thing. The imperial guard were like Roman, were Rome's elite soldiers, right? These are like Caesar's top dogs. They're they're the the top of the, the, the army food chain. They're hearing the gospel preached to them. They wouldn't have had an opportunity for that to happen any other way. And it, it's not only being preached to them, it's filtering down, so he says, to all the rest. So, so presumably he's saying it's, it's not only going from these high-level officials, these, these kind of top, you know, Green Beret types in, in the Roman army, it's going down even to the lowliest servants, right? Throughout, throughout all the rest, they're all hearing about the gospel. They're all understanding that I'm in prison for what I believe. Um, and, and I love, he ends the letter, uh, the, the last chapter in Philippians, one of the very last things he says is, all the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. He's telling the Philippians, there are members in the house of the most powerful man in the world who now believe. So there's huge purposes going forward with the gospel being preached. As, as you know, Paul isn't out there in the marketplace like proclaiming in the open air like he used to do. But he's talking one person at a time, and the gospel's moving forward in powerful ways. So, um, the second thing that we see here is it's not just the providential circumstances. What's going on in the church in Rome? He says in verse 14, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. All the other believers, you know, Paul's been removed from the scene. Here's the guy that everybody was kind of looking to to do his job, and they were just kind of in the wake of this, right? They're going along for the ride. He's been removed. Now, it's up to them. But they're being emboldened to do it. They're doing it without fear. They're, they're seeing somebody suffering for what he believes, and yet here, here's this amazing paradox about suffering, Christian suffering in particular. God uses your suffering to embolden and strengthen and encourage other people. God uses the suffering of his people to fill other members without fear, to give them boldness to move forward, to proclaim the gospel. And so there's ways in which the rest of the church is being stirred up in ways that they hadn't been because of Paul's imprisonment. And so one of the things, we'll, we'll be trying to look at this more closely and apply as we go through, but one of the things you need to realize is that um, there's specific ways that the kingdom of Christ goes forward because of injustice, and that's why Paul is able to say, I rejoice, because there's, a bigger, there's bigger things at work. There's a bigger purpose in his life. And so I want to ask you, um, where are you facing injustice today? 
Where are you facing pain and suffering in your life? We desperately need to have a bigger vision of who God is and what he's doing in these circumstances. We don't have a God who's absent. We don't have a God who's trying to squash you. We have a God who is particularly present in your sufferings. You know, the default of our flesh is to, to look at our sufferings and see his absence. He, the suffering in your life is not a demonstration of his absence. It's a demonstration of his presence and what he is doing through you broadly in the world. And as we'll talk about in a moment here, what he's doing in you personally. So, um, where are you dealing with injustice? Maybe it's, it's in the workplace. You have people dumping on you in ways that they shouldn't. Uh, maybe the workload is unrealistic. You have a boss who's a jerk. Um, maybe it's closer to home. It's in a relationship where you're misunderstood, where maybe past sins that you've done aren't forgiven and you're living with bitterness and resentment. Um, maybe you're similarly as Paul dealing with family members who don't understand this wacky thing you do now. You go to this church and you go to these home meetings and you have all these friends that they don't understand that are different from your old friends and so you're getting flack from extended family or old friends because of of your faith in Christ. Um, What I want to urge you to see is that God is present in these circumstances. He's put you in these circumstances, just like Paul, in order for his kingdom to go forward through you in the midst of this suffering. Um, one, one example, uh, a guy that I'm working with, and I've been working with him for a couple of years because of, of sexual issues that he's struggling with. He, he's out of town, um, so he, he lives in another state. But he, he works for a company, and because this company's all over, I'll say it. He works for AT&T. And he really hates AT&T. AT&T is apparently a really hard place to work. Now, I think my cell phone works fine. Uh, he really is urging me to switch to Verizon. But here's the thing. Uh, you may not know this. The Dilbert cartoon, everybody's seen Dilbert. You know, the guy who's just like ranting and raving against like corporate life. The guy who draws Dilbert used to work for AT&T. My friend loves that. <laughs> the challenge I've tried to give to him is that he needs to get on board with what God is doing because he's dealing with management that's insane, that makes very foolish decisions. He's referred to it as, you know, shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. He doesn't have a whole lot of hope for those of you with stock in AT&T. But he spends his time grumbling to the point where he's even had co-workers. He had one co-worker that started hanging signs saying, no whining around the office. Um, and, And here's the thing. The guy doesn't disagree with him. My friend, I'll call him Frank. Um, this other co-worker doesn't disagree with Frank, but he's just kind of accepting the existence, right? And so my challenge to Frank has been, you know, the sexual stuff in your life, and because he's grown a whole lot, this is true, the sexual stuff in his life is really the back seat. Right now, God needs to deal with who he is in his workplace. Um, he needs to accept the circumstances God has placed him and begin thinking through what does it look like to not be known at work as a whiner, but to be known at work as someone who has joy even when the ship is going down, who has joy even though he has bosses that are unrealistic and making foolish decisions. And I don't know where you're at in your workplace. I don't know where you're at in your relationships, but those circumstances are places where God is calling you uh, to engage, to see him at work, 
and to be to be controlled by a higher purpose. So, so one of the challenges that, that I would give you, in your workplace in particular, was to realize that I love in Colossians where, you know, we don't have a whole lot of employee-employer relationship stuff we can draw from Scripture because that's a little bit new in the history of the world. But we can kind of draw some connections with counsel to slaves. I know that's not particularly encouraging if you're an employee. If you're an employer, you get to be the master. You need to listen to that too. Um, but employees... Um, In Colossians, Paul exhorts slaves to remember who they serve, to serve joyfully because they're serving the Lord Christ. It's not the master that they see, that they have to report to every day. It's There's a higher authority. And God would urge you, I would urge you this morning, brothers and sisters, to realize that there are bigger purposes. There is a greater one that you serve um, getting on board with his agenda is what enables you to experience joy, even when you're dealing with difficult situations. Okay, so I said there was, there was three points under God's purposes. The first one was these providential circumstances that, that Paul was in with the imperial guard and, and, the, and the household of Caesar. The second one is the fact that, that through injustice, God emboldens us, that he, he uh, can use your suffering to encourage the hearts of, of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and the third one is, um, he uses suffering to test our hearts, to expose hearts. And I would say, in this point, um, particularly, we'll, we'll talk more personally in a minute, but, but what I mean here is he exposes the hearts of other people. And so what do we see? Paul goes on um, to say in verse 15 that some are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. Right Down in, in 17, they proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So Paul says people's hearts are being exposed through this imprisonment too. And, and that's a good thing. Now, now, first off, I would say it, it is glorious to me that God works even through human folly and sin. Uh, I've seen it in my own life in very poignant ways. And I've seen it in, in other people that I work with and, and um, live with. And, you know, the reality is God is so big and over things so broadly and grandly that even our sin and folly ultimately is turned around for, for his glory and for our good. And, and so we see this, that people's hearts are being exposed. Um, now it says that they are preaching out of rivalry and envy. So we're not exactly sure what they were hoping to do in terms of afflicting him, but I think certainly part of it is Paul was kind of like an important guy. Lots of people looked up to Paul. He had planted a bunch of churches. You know, he wrote most of the New Testament, right? So he was, he was a big name, and now he's out of the picture. And there's people who all along have been a little covetous of Paul and his gifts and his ability to articulate the gospel and his understanding of theology. And so now he's out of the way. And they have an opportunity to step into the spotlight. They have an opportunity to preach in a way that maybe some of these people have been so devoted to Paul's teaching get a little excited about what they're teaching. And so I think there's a sense in which... Paul is realizing there's people doing this because they really just want to gain a following. They see me in prison. They think they can just kind of stick it to me because they can kind of take all my loyal hearers. Because he refers to them as brothers. He says that they are preaching Christ. So there's a sense in which we are talking about people who are believers. We're not talking... There's there's other places where Paul just rails against false teaching. 
So it's clearly not false teaching that's going on here. Um, but it's people who are immature in Christ and who are seeking to take the spotlight when he's out of it. Um, nevertheless, he rejoices. But I want to ask you, we need to be honest for a minute. You know, I think all of us would say, if I was in the first century and I was in Rome and Paul was in prison, I would not be preaching out of envy and rivalry. I wouldn't be covetous of Paul. Uh, you know, in the first century, they... Jewish leaders told Jesus, you know, if we lived back then, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. We wouldn't have done what our forefathers did, but then they killed him. So we need to be a little bit careful. Um, Let me put it to you like this. How many of you, we'll take the worship team as an example. How many of you really covet maybe the voice or instrumental abilities of people who play on the worship team? I don't have a musical bone in my body, so I certainly fall into that. But some of you, and it's, I think, more dangerous for those of you who do have some gifts. But maybe you see someone who's more gifted, and your heart struggles with that. And maybe it happens that when they screw up a song, you get a little giddy on the inside. You kind of enjoy that a little bit. Uh, maybe you just see people up front, and you would like to be up front because you don't want to sit out there all the time. You'd like to be up front because all of us, frankly, if we're honest, would like to be up front. Um, until you have to get here, then I think, why do I want to do this? Um, but you sit here, and you see people reading or leading in worship in different ways, and maybe you get a little giddy when they get tripped up over their words. Um, we struggle in our desire in Christian service, right? We struggle with envy and rivalry. And and we need to be honest. We need to to see that, to bring that before the Lord. I mean, the bottom line is, I can never get up and preach without repenting of how much that I really just want to be liked by people and really want people to appreciate what I have to say. Um, And yet it gets so much uglier when there's envy and rivalry at work, right? So James talks about where you have envy and selfish ambition, you have wickedness in every vile practice. And so we see this stuff at work and... I just want to challenge you to consider um, where is your service focused on self? Where is it focused on truly serving other people? Where where are you saying my desire here is really to exalt Christ? And where where are you trying to make a name? So in Paul's life, God used suffering very clearly. There were three purposes that he had to, to providentially reach all these Roman folk that wouldn't have heard the gospel, to embolden his people to preach more, to expose the hearts of others who, who needed to be exposed. Um, so he's got lots of purposes in our, suf- in our suffering and in injustice. There's a big picture that's at work, and we need to see kind of the big kingdom purposes that are happening. But God also uses injustice to transform his people. He meets us in injustice. And here's the thing. God grows fruit in the dark. So, this isn't particularly flattering, but Christians are kind of like mushrooms. You know how you grow a mushroom? In the dark, in cow dung. That's how you grow a mushroom. And God's purposes for us is to put us in really dark, stinky places so that we will grow, so that our lives will be changed. And, and we see this really clearly in, in Paul's life. Um, Paul, if if you know much about the New Testament, we see Paul in Acts, and when we first meet him, it's at the stoning of Stephen. And he's this young religious leader, and he's holding everybody's coats, and he's approving of this guy being stoned to death. 
Uh, he gets really excited after that, and he starts persecuting the church. He's riding around. He's going to different towns to lock people up, throw them in prison, have them killed. Paul is kind of the first century example of a fundamentalist, right? This red-faced, screaming, ranting, Bible-thumping person who is self-righteous and condemning and putting everybody down and feeling really good about himself. He's one of those people that, frankly, if you're not a Christian, it's kind of a miracle that you're here this morning because you've seen them and they keep lots of people out of the church because it's scary and that's who Paul was. But look at how he's changed. Look at how his life has been transformed. He's gone from someone who had it all together, and, and you're gonna, in a couple of weeks, you're gonna look in, uh, Philippians 3 at, at this point, he, and he's being very tongue in cheek as he does this, but he goes through his whole kind of resume in Philippians 3 of how great he is and how he could speak, you know, more profoundly than anybody else and why he has a platform to do that. And again, it's very tongue in cheek because his conclusion is it's all in the King James dung compared to knowing Jesus. But that's who Paul was. He was this incredibly arrogant man. Um, who was really self-righteous, who had it all together, who uh, would not have suffered the kind of um, being put down the way he is here, right? And yet, a profound change has happened. About five years before he wrote this letter, he wrote another letter. He wrote a letter to um, the church in Corinth. And in the church in Corinth, in the letter of Second Corinthians, he recounts all the ways that he suffered, Ways that God took him through that, that were all the injustice that had happened to him. Ways he'd been stoned and left for dead and shipwrecked and, and beaten and all this, all these horrible things that had happened to him. And he learned through those things that God's grace was sufficient for him. That the power of Christ was made perfect in his weakness. That, that he needed to be weakened in order to learn the strength of Christ, in order to learn where power really comes from. And we'll talk about that in a minute more fully. But this is the challenge I want to put before you. Um, We need to accept that suffering is an integral part of our life. It's like I have this bumper sticker idea, sanctification happens. Um, God puts us in these hard places to change us. And this is really hard for us to accept, I would say, as Americans, because I think as Americans, we have kind of a baseline assumption of life that there will be no pain. And then we gauge what a good life is by these little spikes you get of, you know, happiness or success or security or pleasure. You know, we assume no pain and then a good life is everything on top of that. And if you don't get much on top of that, then it's not a good life. Um... The vast majority of the world doesn't look at life that way. We have uh, friends of mine who used to be missionaries in Uganda, and the brother shared one time about how little girls in his village in Uganda, you know what they do for play? They imitate funerals. Girls that are four, five, six, seven, eight years old, they get together a bundle of sticks and they put it on their shoulders and they carry it like it's a corpse and they all practice wailing and screaming and carrying on. That's what they do for fun in his village in Uganda. That's a radically different worldview. But frankly, it's more... I'm not espousing that. I love that my little girls play with dolls. Don't get me wrong. Um, but we need, to, we need to embrace a little bit more poignantly the reality that God calls us to suffer and not be surprised, right? So, so first Peter says, why are you surprised when you go through fiery trials of all kinds as if something strange were happening to you? God uses these things to change us. Um, 
One of the things that's been really helpful for me in recent months is that I've started exercising more faithfully than I have in a long, long time. Um, and so I've been running regularly, and I finally experienced what they call a runner's high. Let me just tell you this. A runner's high is not cocaine, okay? You know what a runner's high is? It just doesn't suck. That's a runner's high. You can keep putting one foot in front of the other, and it just doesn't suck. Um, I have I have a background in illicit drugs. That's not a high. Whoever came up with that, that is not a high. Um, but it's been very helpful for me to learn. It's been a spiritual discipline for me to do. Because I do learn that I can persevere and that I can keep going. And now, many of you have maybe lived more healthfully than I have, so you've known that for a long time. But we need to learn that emotionally and spiritually, God gives us endurance. But it only happens when we're in really broken, hurting, horrific places. Um, so we need to learn to start accepting the challenges that he has for us and, and that reality. Um, and he gives us a pattern to follow. I, I love this passage in, in 1 Peter 2. He says, um, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We shouldn't be surprised by the reality of injustice because it's, it's the pattern that Jesus has set down for us and told us to walk in. You know, there's something profoundly Christ-like about learning to endure suffering and injustice. And so I want to ask you, how, how do you respond when you're treated unjustly? Do you get defensive? Do you lash back? Do you try to fight back? Um, when we face injustice, it is an invitation for us to learn to begin responding in love. Now, I want to qualify this a little bit because I think... We need to be careful. What, I, what I'm telling you is that with a lot of injustice, God is calling you to take it on the chin. You know, there's a statement that Jesus made. You might have heard of it. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn him the left one also. Um, turn, hitting, hitting someone on the right cheek, you know, we're talking about a culture that was very focused on the right hand. If you got hit with a, with a fist, it would be on your left cheek, right? If you got a backhand, it would be on your right cheek. So I'm not a pacifist. I think in a fallen world, we do need to have defenses and whatnot. Uh, I think a military is okay. But Jesus was saying, when somebody disrespects you, how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? I want to qualify it because typically, this is my pattern. I got this from Seinfeld. The most redemptive Seinfeld episode is the one where George realizes that every decision he ever made in his life was the exact opposite of what it should have been. So he actually looks kind of like a righteous man through that one half hour. Um, Typically, we need to to think through doing things differently, right? And so some of you, the reason why I want to qualify this is, let me just give one example. If you are in a bad marriage with a spouse who oppresses you, I'm not saying keep sucking it up, okay? You need to hear that. Uh, Turning the other cheek does not mean just be squashed with oppression, Um, But people who typically in your pride respond to 
injustice, by getting defensive, by getting angry, by pushing back. Um, God is calling you to take it on the chin for his glory, to be humbled by it. Um, I love that, you know, the passage we read earlier from Philippians 2, that we're supposed to be looking to who Jesus is as the one who humbled himself and made himself um, vulnerable, even to, to a death on a cross, right? He made himself a servant. Uh, this is a, a great quote from, from Andrew Murray. He's got a wonderful little book called Humility. And he says, Accept every humiliation. Look upon every fellow man who tries or vexes you as a means of grace to humble you. Use every opportunity of humbling yourself before your fellow men as a help to abide humble before God. You know, the reality is, the biggest challenge that we face in a lot of ways is our own pride. And God wants to use injustice to humble you, to bring you to a place that your life begins to look more like Jesus. So, who is existing in relationship right now with you in envy and rivalry? Uh, Maybe it is in the workplace. Maybe you have somebody who is just committed to walking over you, to squashing you, to push themselves up. Um, How are you dealing with that envy and rivalry? Are you responding in a similar way? Are you kind of feeding the talk around the water cooler about this guy or gal? Are you trying to find opportunities to drop to your superior little statements about them and where they dropped the ball here or there? Um, Are you responding in a similar way out of envy and rivalry? Are you responding out of a radical love and humility that moves towards people that are hard and challenging and difficult? Because God wants to change how you're responding in those circumstances. Um, Again, in our personal relationships, uh, let me let me just say this. A lot of times we're not very honest in the church. Marriage is really, really hard. And lots of couples try to figure it out on their own. And the, and the bottom line is this. If, if what Scripture says is true, that you are one flesh, then y'all are just like one pinky. You know, you're just one body part. What is happening in that home is not the body. That's just one part of the body. Just like when you were living alone before you got married, you were just one part of the body. So the body really needs to be engaged and involved and to speak in. And if you're facing challenges in marriage, as I suspect many of you are who are married, um, you need to get the body involved if they're not. What does it look like for you with your spouse to not be defensive, to be willing to hear Um, Even in the face of injustice, when you're being wrongly treated, how do you respond? And, you know, the other thing I would say more broadly in our relationships in the body of Christ and our friendships, um, envy and rivalry can be a big deal in our friendships. You know, particularly I would say among folks like us who are single, um, friendships really matter a lot. And envy and rivalry can be a big deal. Um, you know, we don't know if they're married but, or, or not or if they're single, but later on in this book, in chapter 4, Paul is going to plead with a couple women to sort out whatever is going on between them. Would you guys please work through the problems that you have so that there can be unity, so that there can be common purpose? Um, I don't know if there was envy and rivalry going on between them, but we know for sure there's disunity right now, and, and they need to address that. So where... Where is envy and rivalry a problem in your relationships? Where is God calling you to be transformed through that? I would say again, particularly in the face of dealing with injustice from someone else, where someone is unjustly treating you, um, 
How is God calling you to move forward in love? God uses suffering to transform us, uh, and we see this. This is the pattern. Jesus was straight up with us. Lots of us, and I, and I struggle with a lot of times the way we do things like uh, evangelism, because I don't know if you've ever heard of the four spiritual laws, but, but they say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And, you know, that's kind of true as far as it goes, but the wonderful plan really needs to be qualified. Um, Jesus was much more honest. Jesus said, you know what the Christian life is? Here's a cross. It's really heavy. It even has splinters in it. It's going to tear up your back as you carry it up the hill. And when you get there, they're going to kill you. That's the Christian life. But his promise is there's a, there's a resurrection on the other side of that. And, and here's the glory. We're going, to, we're going to get to this more in a moment. Um, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. What does Hebrews mean when it says that? Jesus, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. If Jesus' life just was really sweet from the cradle to the grave, you would, have known, you would not have known he was God. How do you know he was God? Because he hung on the cross with people mocking him and spitting him and killing him brutally. And he said, Father, forgive them. Because he went through a trial that was totally farcical, and instead of calling a spade a spade and saying what it was, he kept his mouth shut and he took it. He demonstrated his perfection because he suffered. And he's calling us to walk that same road. But his promise is that he is using all these things in your life. And so one of the most misunderstood verses, I think, in the New Testament, Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says, God is working all things together for good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose. Right? And Christians love that verse. We like to put it on coffee mugs and put little wreaths of flowers around it and stuff. And you can sip your tea and it's so nice to think about. But then your life hits the fan and you say, what in the world is this? Right? Where's the other side of the mug? Um, They need to go all the way. Because we have a very, again, Western American understanding of what good means. When God says good, he tells us in verse 29 what it means. That we would be conformed to the image of Jesus so that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's God's good for our life. That's his plan. That's what he is working out in you. So, he uses um, injustice to bring us to that place. Finally, my last point, that injustice invites God's power in our life. Injustice shows off his purposes writ large. Injustice shows his purposes in very personal ways in our life to transform us. But injustice is also the place in a very particular way where Jesus meets his people. And so um, I love this, this, this place in Matthew 26. It's, it's when Jesus is being betrayed and, you know, Judas comes, you know, the story, he kisses him in the garden. And Peter immediately, like, pulls out his sword and cuts off somebody's ear. And Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. Don't you know that in this moment I could speak a word and my father would send 12 legions of angels to deliver me? Don't you know that? Real power in the Garden of Gethsemane was Jesus saying, okay, take me away. What we think is power would have been the angels showing up and everybody getting obliterated. It would have been like, uh, yeah. 
Right. That's what we think it would be. Jesus showing up and everybody getting destroyed. You know, all these angels. Um, real power was him saying, okay, you can take me. This is what Hebrews promises us. He is able to help us in our suffering because he suffered. But unlike you or me who suffer and we say, maybe God doesn't exist, or we say, maybe God's just punishing, maybe he's just cruel and he's trying to squash me under his thumb, or we just start pointing fingers or we lash out at everybody around us, Jesus suffered victoriously. Jesus suffered perfectly, loving the people who were killing him. And I love, you know, heard Tim Keller talk about this in a couple sermons, that Jesus worshipped from the cross. That Jesus hung on the cross, the only person who from hell, totally separated from the Father, worshipped. Worshipped Him. And that's the power that He offers to us as we go through this. So, just as Paul learned that God's power was made perfect in His weakness, He wants us to learn the same thing. And so we face all kinds of injustice, particularly that we would learn that He's with us in the suffering. You know, the point of the Christian life is not being good moral people. The point of the Christian life is not um, eventually you get to go to heaven when you die. The point of the Christian life, I love how Jesus actually says this in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He says, this is eternal life. He's, he's praying to the Father. He says, this is eternal life that they would know you, Father, and that they would know me. The, the Christian life is about growing Intimately, closer and closer and closer with Jesus, knowing more and more of him, and I would say broadly also with his people, um, because we are his body together. It's not just me and Jesus, it's us and Jesus, like I talked about a couple months ago when I was here, um, but it is growing intimately with him. And so Paul, later on in Philippians, you'll get to in a couple chapters, um, He says that that his desire in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul's passion is to know this one, to understand the unity that he has in Christ, to grow more deeply in that relationship. And here's the reality. You learn more of Christ in suffering like in nothing else. So how are you using your suffering? How are you using the injustice? Is it deepening this relationship? You know, Paul could not sit here and say, I rejoice in people causing me trouble unless a miracle was happening. It takes a miracle for that to happen. It takes supernatural intervention for that to happen. For the guy who was holding cloaks at Stephen Stoning and laughing about it, thinking it was a good thing, for him to be able to take this kind of injustice on the chin is a profound demonstration of the Holy Spirit at work. And this is what he wants to do in our lives. He wants to bring us to a place where we are radically changed, that we're on board with his agenda, we are clinging to him, we are drawing close to him, and being fed by his spirit. Um, There is ways, you know, I shared last time when I was here that I, I lost my wife eight months ago. There are ways that Jesus has met me in this suffering that he never has before. You know, I, I would have thought, um, and I hope this doesn't sound callous, but I really would have thought that because of the resurrection, this wouldn't hurt so bad. 
You know, I know I'm going to see my wife again. Um, I miss her. I'm lonely. But I had no idea that it was possible to hurt as bad as I hurt. I had no idea that when people mention heartache, that it's an actual physical thing. That it really is. That there is an ache that you can't make go away and you can't get rid of. Um, no matter how much you cry and wail and scream, it doesn't stop. You know, I kind of, I likened it a couple months ago to feel like I needed to vomit. But you know how like when you're really sick and you feel like you have to vomit and you really don't want to do it, but then you do it and you know you're going to be better on the other side of it? It's like that, except you can't get it out of you. There's no way to get it out of you. But what I've learned is that Jesus meets me in that place. And that there is a supernatural presence and his arms are around me and he is a comforter in the midst of the most brutal experience I've ever been through in my life. Um, I don't know where you're at and I don't know where you're suffering, but I know we have one who will meet you there, who will comfort you, who wants to strengthen you and sustain you in any circumstance that you're in. God wants our lives to be governed by a purpose that Paul sees that is cosmic, literally, that defines all the small things that you walk through. You know, he, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about being so oppressed that he was despairing even of life. And yet later, a couple chapters later, he says that in chapter 1. In chapter 4, he says... Um, these light and momentary afflictions that we experience are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. He's not saying that what we go through in life is small. He was despairing of life. But what he's saying is compared to the weight of glory that's coming, they are light and momentary. I don't know where you're at and where you're struggling. I don't know the kind of injustice you're facing. But I would plead with you, brothers and sisters, to see that Jesus is a comforter that meets you, that he has purposes in what he's taking you through, that what's going on in your life isn't an accident. He has purposes that he wants to accomplish that are grand, that are bigger than you. He has purposes he wants to accomplish in you, transforming you, humbling you, making you more like Jesus. And as you're going through that, Jesus himself wants to meet you, to minister to you, to comfort you, to strengthen you. Through his people, I would say, and then also uniquely, supernaturally, to enable you to do what you cannot do on your own. There is no way I could have lived the last eight months without him. There's no way I could have done it. Now, there's lots of people who face injustice and overcome it without God. That's true. I mean, you can look at all kinds of different people, political prisoners, people who have suffered different things, and they haven't responded violently, and they've taken it on the chin. Um, but here's what happens. If you do this without God, it doesn't humble you. It makes you proud. God wants to do it in a way that humbles you, so that you actually learn to love better, so that you learn to love other people better. You don't just endure and refuse to, like, you know, be the bigger person. I'm going to be the bigger person. God wants to change you so that you're able to actually love and rejoice in those very people who oppress and do injustice, uh, indeed becoming more and more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you 
On one level, your word says, you know our frame, you know that we are weak. Lord, that is so much more poignantly true than the psalmist even knew because, Jesus, you know what it's like specifically to walk in our shoes as someone who suffers, as someone who was dealing with injustice, as someone who was misunderstood and mocked and ridiculed all throughout your life. Lord, I thank you that you suffered victoriously and that you now offer us the grace and power we need to live out of that. That you can meet us uniquely where we are, having suffered in every way, being tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. You can meet us and give us the grace we need. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to you. Lord, I pray now as we come to the table that you would meet us there, that you would minister to us, that you would give us a supernatural strength through this sacrament that we would perceive more poignantly your presence with us and live out of that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.